Hello, I'm Dr. Jennifer Pierce, and this is Singular XQ, the podcast about digital transformation. In this unprecedented time of accelerating explosive change, many of us feel like we don't know what we're doing. But I know one thing. We can't solve the problems of digital transformation inside silos. So we're doing the work of digital transformation, one conversation at a time. We have with us today, Charles Morrow. Charles, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. I'm Charles Morrow. I'm founder and president of Morrow Usability Science, a human factors engineering research and usability science firm located in New York. I founded the firm in 1975 and been involved in a couple of thousand projects over the years, focusing primarily on uh, man-machine system optimization, usability, and human factors engineering science. We're so honored to have you on the air. You have so many different areas of expertise that we like to talk about here. So if you're ready to get started, I'm going to start asking you some questions. Are you ready? You bet. Go ahead. Okay. So let's talk about usability science. And I'm putting quotes around it because it's not a term that people, when they do use it, maybe don't use with understanding. But could you talk a little bit about the relationship of usability science to what was once called human factors engineering, and then now sometimes people conflate it with UX research. Can you tell me about how all those different areas overlap and how you came to specialize in usability science specifically? Sure. Well, let's back up from a historical point of view. The primary basis for UX research, usability science, oops, pardon me, was the development of human factors engineering uh, during the Second World War. And that came about as, as a result of the first development of weapon systems that were incapable of human operation. And it was this insight by a group of psychologists and researchers at Cambridge and in the United States at MIT. They realized that for the first time in history, this, these technologies would outstrip human capability. So they developed this new science, technically known as human factors research where they took into account human needs and limitations in the design of weapon systems. And this sort of cataloging and structure of a understanding the human body in terms of its cognitive and physical capabilities and limitations formulated the basic literature of human factors engineering science. And that technology and that, that research was used for ongoing weapons development systems you know, all the way up to the current time. And in fact, the Ukrainian outcome is going to be largely dictated on human factors, science, innovations in American and Western weapon systems. So anyway, from a historical point of view, human factors science is the progenitor of usability and usability science and also related to UX research. I think it's important to understand that human factors science is a formal science and individuals who have a background in that specific discipline, a proven discipline, have either a graduate degree or undergraduate degree from a, a validated program in human factors science. Now, the problem is that there has been historically not that many programs that produced human factors scientists. Today in the United States, there's about 30 programs that contribute, academic programs that contribute such expertise. On a global basis, there's about 70 programs. But on a yearly basis, you only graduate a few hundred human factors scientists. And these individuals have formal background in research in cognitive science, anthropometry, biomechanics, study design, experimental study design, 
statistics, diversity research. And they are, as a professional group, much different than what you would see in terms of expertise, in terms of UX research. UX research tends to be a much less structured, less defined academic background, and less expertise, by and large, in formal study design. Usability science is sort of a combination of human factors research and UX research. And we utilize that term because it's generally more recognizable in industry. But my personal background, I have a graduate degree in human factors research from New York University. I studied there in the medical school for three years. So that's sort of a quick overview. And the term usability science today is intended to separate it sort of conceptually from a traditional UX research. Mm -hmm. One thing I would point out is that there are several hundred thousand UX research researchers active today, and there's probably somewhere around 13,000 human factors research scientists working today. And over 70% of the human factors scientists with either masters or PhDs are actually retained by the defense industry. So most of those individuals work on weapons development. So that's, that's a quick overview. Yeah. So, and would you say that that's related to human computer interaction too, which is another field that emerged after human factors research, but is somewhat related? Yeah. Human factors science has many, you know, sub-disciplines. Human computer interaction was really brought to its initial early stages through the development of the graphical user interface or the GUI. And that, you know, pushed forward a whole new generation of core research related to human-computer interaction. But HCI is a subcategory of human factor science when you look at it from the detailed science, structured science point of view. Not to say that there isn't plenty of folks practicing HCI that don't have human factors background, but HCI is a, is a subcategory from a theoretical point of view of human factor science and came about in the development of early computer systems in the 60s and 70s as I said, brought forward primarily by Douglas Engelbart's invention of the GUI, the graphical user interface. Right, right. Yeah, it's very interesting to me because I came into the field at a very early point in the 90s when everything was going to, you know, we were building intranets and things like that for the moment everything was going from analog to digital in large corporations. And since that time, it's become quite contentious because what I'm seeing from with my clients, and I'm wondering if you've run across this, is that people will set up research practices inside a UX department or inside a product department, but the people that come in have multiply different backgrounds. Some of them have human factors engineering backgrounds. Some of them have advanced degrees in human computer interaction. Some of them have advanced degrees in social sciences like anthropology or psychology or sociology. And then some people are just flat, straight up UX research. Like they came up through working boots on the ground in the industry. So it leads to this collision of approaches and understandings. Have you noticed that? And if you have, how do you help clarify those different practices inside an organization? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, there are definitely conflicts. And we believe very strongly, and, we, and this is proven out in the actual industrial practice, that the, the primary methodologies that, that human factors engineering as a formal discipline bring to the table is by far the best overall glue for tying all these disciplines together. Because, I mean, even though you could have a PhD in you know, cognitive neuroscience from Harvard, you may not have a clue about task analysis or function allocation 
or other forms of, let's say, for example, physical anthropometry or biomechanics. These are all disciplines that are directed at the man-machine interface. I use, you know, man as a, as a generic term there. So we find that human factors is the guiding set of methodologies that are work most effectively for bringing these, these disciplines together. But I will say that in our business, we tend to work on projects that are absolutely business or mission critical. So there tends to be not a lot of conflict in the, in the work that we do. I will say that more recently, we've been working with larger high-tech companies on consumer-facing products. And in those cases, we do see significant internal conflict surfacing from the very beginning of projects with respect to moderation and development of a structured methodology for solving the core human factors, engineering, or usability or user engagement problems. And in those cases, we always defer back to the core human factors science discipline as the sort of the framework for integrating all of these various disciplines together. And once you do that, and if you understand the other disciplines effectively, you can pull these other disciplines into the human factors framework very effectively. You know, as I said, some of the PhD in cognitive neuroscience can be extremely helpful in terms of answering questions with respect to, let's say, transfer of learning or memory or uh, certain types of errors. But left to their own, they'll have no idea how to structure the study overall or the program overall so that it leads to the ultimate optimization of the user interface. And, and we do get, you know, discipline conflicts frequently in these more consumer-directed sorts of studies, but in mission-critical sorts of interfaces, we designed the trading systems used on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, for example, and other major trading systems, the GUI. Those projects had huge human factors engineering components, some lasting you know, over a year before any design was done. But there's no conflict on those. The only conflict we would see in mission-critical or business-critical interfaces would be between the human factors science team and the engineering team software engineering team initially, because as we all know, software engineers consider themselves human factors engineers, you know, at a core level. So there's, there's always some, you know, disconnect there, but that gets resolved very quickly when the software engineering team realizes that human factors science is a, is a formal discipline and it really solves complex problems. Yes. I mean, that, that's basically it. It scales as it wins and it's getting that first win on the, on the table. And to me, it, it seems like, and what you're describing kind of resonates with this, but what you're describing is the challenge of truly cross-functional and cross-disciplinary efforts, because designing software does pull all of those factors in and agreeing on a way of working is probably the biggest hurdle. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's true. The largest negative impacting conceptual model currently that we experience in our projects is agile and you know software engineers and and corporate managers love agile for various reasons because it's quantifiable you can map it out it you know breaks things up into you know small bites but it it's really as practiced by most software engineering teams is essentially a reason for not doing you know serious human factors research during product development so i you know agile and some of the other product development methodologies can wreak havoc on usability and user acceptance if, if they're not integrated into it, the Agile framework. But as soon as human factor science is integrated into Agile, it slows it down. And that 
becomes a problem almost instantly, especially with product design, product development managers who have a tight, you know, previously agreed upon delivery schedule. Yeah, which is funny because in Agile, you're not supposed to have deadlines like you do in Waterfall. You're supposed to work from sprint to sprint based on learnings. And those learnings should come in part from research. But it's very interesting. And I'm going to go off on a tangent if we go down that that rabbit hole. But that's a very interesting observation. And, and what we've seen here at SQLXQ is it depends on how, how far along in their Agile transformation the organization actually is. Because an early transforming organization is going to see discovery as a bottleneck for sure. When you get to more developed areas, you know, there's always that third track that's happening out above and ahead of the scrum that's supposed to feed information back into the backlog, right? And that's when you start to really be able to integrate these practices, not as a bottleneck, but as an accelerator. But having said that, let's move on to another area of expertise that you have that I find absolutely fascinating as a person who's created intellectual property and a person who deals in intellectual property on a daily basis. Talk to me about your expertise in intellectual property, how it evolved and where you're applying it now. Sure. Yeah, I've been an expert witness in over 75 major IP cases. My background in intellectual property goes back to the mid-70s when I first started my firm. And at that point, there was very little actual experts or expertise available to corporations or law firms for the purpose of helping them identify whether or not innovations are technically innovative or not, whether they're patentable, and helping you know, law firms, large legal teams, understand human factors engineering and user interface design. And most of that work focused on product design, three-dimensional product design, and early HCI. So currently, a portion of our business every year is expert witness work related to major IP cases. And in those, in those instances, we conduct formal structured surveys, consumer surveys that are utilized by legal teams in preliminary injunction filings or court filings. And in some large cases, we go all the way to trial and testify at trial with respect to the innovation present in the given product and whether or not there's infringement present. I think it's interesting to note, though, if you back up to the current legal system overall, if one looks at the USPTO and, and the current federal statutes that relate to the definition of intellectual property, in other words, what's patentable and what isn't, there's a huge gap that's present, which has not been resolved. And that's how one protects screen-based innovations, human-computer interaction innovations. There's really no framework for that. So what happens is the corporations end up trying to stuff their GUI innovations or their HCI innovations, either under design patents or copyright. And those frameworks are, are not designed to support effectively HCI innovations. There's a big missing piece in the current world IP structure in terms of protecting these new forms of, of innovation and interaction. This is a particularly difficult problem when you think about the massive number of functions that are virtually migrating into screen-based delivery. Virtual migration is probably the single largest transformation in technology in the last 20 years. Not well understood, not well researched, but it's the core progression of technology from, you know, like a physical wristwatch to screen-based sort of functions that are very robust. So IP is a source of great interest to us and we have actually developed formal new methodologies utilizing human factor science. Uh, one of the primary questions in all large litigation is how different is different? 
I mean, do two products that appear to be the same, how do consumers really judge that difference? And that turns out to be an interesting neuroscience question because different individuals with different levels of expertise and background will visual will judge products differently in terms of similarity and differences. And we've developed and validated methodologies for advancing the question significantly, utilizing more advanced neuroscience methodologies. So in summary, IP, a tremendously interesting field for HCI and for product design overall. And I think that human factor science has sort of dropped the ball by not being more involved in the field of IP from the standpoint of methodology and, and expert testimony. Well, now we're seeing a collision here, right? Like, so when we are talking about the chat GPT technology that people are teaching their large learning, large language models with data that's coming and by data that could mean anything from images to text that they didn't formally get permission to use per se. How is intellectual property coming up in those contexts? It's an area of fascination for us here. We wonder what your take is on it and will there be successful litigation against these models that have been taught on data available on the internet, but not necessarily given explicit permission to use for that purpose? Yeah, yeah, it's a wonderful question and tremendous amount of back and forth currently in the legal community related to this exact question. But at the end of the day, I think that the Chad GTP or LLM development teams are going to win this from a legal point of view because in copyright law, there's concepts which protect the combining of, of multiple pieces of, of artwork mm -hmm. into a protectable or, or, or non-protectable creative act. And when you look at copyright law going, going back, you know, 100 years or more, that is a very strongly held legal concept, which I do not think those individuals who are concerned about their content being scraped and reorged in the LLM models are going to prevail on. My point of view on this is that it's it's essentially, you know, a paper tiger. I do think there'll be cases where, you know, the law will, will produce conflicting rulings, as there always is. But I think in large measure, LLM models are going to prevail and they're not going to be significantly, I would say, attenuated through the current legal structure. Now, that could change if the LLM models, you know, bridge into the combining of material that is too close to the original artwork. And I think that if you look at the underlying mathematical structure of LLM overall, you'll see at their core, they're designed to do just the reverse. Right. So I don't really see this from my point of view and, you know, looking at the larger legal literature currently and talking to colleagues at major law firms about this. We don't think that LLM is going to lose its position based on litigation. We think they're going to move forward. And certainly there will be conflicting rulings, but the law going back over 100 years is very strong on the side of LLM, as long as they just don't get too close to the original, the original work. Yeah, it used to be, and I can't remember the exact number, so I don't want to say the right, but it used to be something like if you transformed, that was the word that would be used 
at least like say X percent of the original, then it could be considered a new creation and wasn't a violation. And this is what I've been sort of saying to people, which is there are legal precedents for this because people, that's what artists and creators do is they mash up other ideas together in a new idea. And, and so it's just what's scary and intimidating right now is the power, strength and speed that the LLM is able to do it at. But that's exactly how the human mind creates, which is a form of cognitive blending, right? And, and you mentioned something that I want to go back to, though. I have always wondered when Bill Gates invented Windows based on the Apple interface, is that how he was able to do it? Because that's not something that you're able to patent or copyright at this point. Oh, well, the Apple GUI and its relationship to Microsoft Windows is a there's entire PhDs written on that exact question. Yes. Uh, in quick summary, basically what happened there was that Apple made a couple of tactical mistakes with respect to its patent filings early on when it translated the Xerox Park GUI, which is essentially developed based on the Engelbart GUI. Mm -hmm. when, Apple, when Apple acquired that, that technology, it didn't really manage its IP very well. So it left open this opportunity for others to capture critical core concepts of the of the Apple GUI in their product and Bill Gates and his legal team. And there's always those who have said, you know, Microsoft was a law firm that makes uh, software. You know, they realized quite, quite quickly that with the onset of the Macintosh, well, actually with the onset of the Lisa, that the consumer's access to core computer technology was going to be essentially driven by the GUI. So they were already planning, you know, a move to a GUI for Windows. But, you know, there was some some litigation between Microsoft and, and Apple over the acquisition of that. But basically, you know, it was mapped to some poor legal management of the of Apple's IP. And then Gates and his firm being extremely aggressive in acquiring and putting together the, the Windows IP. So you're saying, though, that there was a way that they could have protected that innovation at that time, but they didn't avail themselves of it. Well, there's, there's a whole set of legal theorists who say yes. There's a whole set that said no, because the GUI was already essentially in the public domain from the standpoint, from the time at which Engelbart produced his mother of all demos presentation at Stanford, mm. which was the, you know, basically reflected the complete embodiment of the of the core concepts of the GUI. So, you know, whether or not, you know, Apple would have prevailed with better IP, it's probably highly questionable. But what's interesting, of course, is that the GUI is probably the seminal breakthrough in terms of human computer interaction, you know, in the last 40 years. Chat GTP or LLM models is are the next big breakthrough, but but most in the UX UI human factor space have missed that. And the, the reason for that is if you have a truly complex human-computer interaction design problem, what you end up with if you use a GUI technology is you end up with a system that reflects GUI processes and methods. But what actually happens is that you still have unbelievable levels of specific learning required on the part of users. For example, I just wrote a recent piece on GPT chat, chat GTP, and its use in monitoring the major problems that are present in Google AdWords. I don't know if you use mm -hmm. AdWords, but AdWords is, is migrated to a hideously complex GUI system. Mm -hmm. The chat GTP interface on Google AdWords would dramatically reduce the complexity of that type of interface. And that article is one of my 
recent posts in LinkedIn talks about. I remember reading it. Yes, I remember reading it. That, and you say that they've missed missed that the human factors community and the usability community has missed that. So far, so far. Yes, yeah, yeah. so far. Okay, but I was going to say the window is still open, right? Sure. Yeah. 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 My experience has been very strange because I came at artificial intelligence from a academic standpoint and theory of mind back in 2003 and 2004. And at that time, I was deep into studying classical cognitivism and the challenges the human body presents to the classical cognitivist position. And what I was very focused on was emotions and artificial intelligence that one of the key factors of human intelligence is that we choose to emote for things that we know are not true in the form of fiction, drama, entertainment, music, art. And what is that? Why do we do it? Is it true emotion or is it quasi-emotion? And until we can figure that out, we are not going to be able to create a conversational AI that can relate to humans in a truly human intelligence uh, way, right? And at the time, it just, it's sort of the, the big fixation was natural language programming, right? And how, yes. how are we going to be able to model this? But it was overtaken. And I just, I'm narrating this to see if you had the same kind of experience. It was overtaken by the fixation on what artificial intelligence could do in interpreting images. And that all of a sudden took over the conversation. Everybody who was talking about like 4E cognition, extended cognition, all of these different models of embodied cognition that were to be applied to artificial intelligence, I stopped hearing them and I started hearing more and more about how we're able to derive data from images. So I was surprised when this emerged when it did, not that I didn't know it was coming, but that it seemed to me that that conversation had been lost for a long time. Did you see that trend? And then now do you think that's part of the reason why we're a little bit behind the eight ball on that? Because it seemed to recede for a while. Yeah, great question. We looked at AI over the last 15 years extensively as a methodology for enhancing our intellectual property research related to the question of how different is different. Because you can model, you can train a system on product images, for example, and mm -hmm. you can write subroutines that approach the question of substantial similarity, mm -hmm. which is the actual test in design patent litigation, for example, are two designs substantially similar. But what happens there is that those models are so narrowly driven by engineering-based algorithms that, as you noted, you can't integrate effectively human diversity into the analysis of visual images, especially products. So what those platforms lacked was this question of human diversity and decision-making. So yes, we saw that. I mean, I think you you hit on an incredibly important point, you know, just in passing in your previous comment. Like, why do we have this problem with LLM, like say chat GPT-4, where it, it puts out this conflicting, sometimes totally screwy information that is counterintuitive? The reason for that, we believe in our research team, is that the system is trained on both fiction and nonfiction. Mm -hmm. and it, it cannot separate in terms of word sequence insertion, whether to capture the data from a fictional scrape or a factual scrape. So what you really have is a composite currently, you have a composite of fiction, nonfiction training model 
that is incapable of bifurcating the two data sets. You know, when we go see a streetcar named Desire, we don't confuse that with a, you know, an argument we might have with our spouse. The human mind, as you, as you well know, is an entirely robust, context-specific machine for identifying the presence of information and its relevance to decision-making. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm smiling because now you've hit on why I thought that the research I was doing was so relevant, which was not easily received at that time. But now we see things, right, like where Conamigo, Salcon's AI digital tutor, they're teaching it to interact with children from an emotional level so that the Mississippi River can be a friend that the child talks to in order to learn about its properties, its qualities, its history. And I think this is brilliant because the idea that emerges from that research about fiction is that the ability to emote for fictions actually enhances our ability to learn and remember. So now it's becoming very clear, as you just narrated, why that's important, because with the predictive text model, we still haven't cracked that nut, which is we can create a, a pretty striking similarity between, you know, an actual person and, and the artificial intelligence, but it still has not reached the complexity of how humans use language, which is this ability to, and, you know, when we were back, when we were using Boolean operands to do all kinds of search, even in sentiment analysis, right, you know, I was very involved in the early social data monitoring efforts to find if we could wrest insight from them. And the Boolean operands would take things like, you know, way to go, Acme Corporation, you just foreclosed on my grandmother's house, right? And the the bot would interpret that as being a positive sentiment towards Acme Corporation, right? <laughs> right? And so the inability to detect sarcasm and fiction and things done for effect is really going to be the next big hurdle, I think, in this technology. So let's move the, this is fascinating. I could go down this rabbit hole with you, but I want to actually move on to the next topic that we had identified, which is we were talking quite a bit about meta and mixed reality. And I know that your firm has done a lot of research in this area and you have some really well-formed science-backed opinions on this. So I'd love to hear your take on the mixed reality future and the quote unquote meta of it all. Sure. Yeah, about, I guess it's been about a decade now, maybe a little bit longer. We did I, what I think was the largest in-world avatar behavior study undertaken at, at that point, maybe still today, I'm not sure. We examined interactions between over a million avatars in, a, in several virtual worlds. And in the process of doing that, we were, well, <clears throat> just talk briefly about the underlying infrastructure. That particular system, those systems were developed, they sat on top of infrastructure was developed for military training. And that particular software gave us access to the underlying behavior of avatars in a way that Second Life, for example, could never provide. So what we were able to look at was micro level interactions at the individual avatar level as they navigate a virtual world and the individual interactions between avatars themselves, groups of avatars, two sets of avatars, what they purchased, where they spent their time. And, and essentially what that data provided us in terms of insight was that the metaverse, well, well, having an initially relatively high level of engagement, say zero to 30 minutes, even zero to a few hours, 
and the drop-off rate is absolutely staggering. And the refusal to return is something that we never saw in any other piece of software. So what we were able to put together was what are the underlying sort of drivers that lead to this lack of willingness to continue to engage with the environment, the virtual environment. And in summary, what we discovered is basically the metaverse is a highly impoverished environment and its lack of physical reality, which, you know, technologists think is its driving function, is actually its failure. And humans pick up small cues that make things engaging and satisfying. For example, human gait or walking is something that <clears throat> lends a high degree of reality and engagement with a, a virtual avatar. That is something that's always been missing from, and it's certainly missing from the, the, the current meta, Facebook and metaverse. As you'll notice, the avatars have no legs. One of the reasons they have no legs is modeling human gait is probably the most complex yep. and you know pro programming and hardware intensive aspect of creating the virtual world. So the bottom line is very simply that the metaverse as executed by meta and others is basically a, a behavior tracking system on steroids. You can track the visual fixations of an avatar, what they're looking at, how long they're looking at it. You can track their emotional state if you happen to have the metaverse interfaced with microfacial, which is possible using low-cost eye tracking technology. So our point of view on this was really nothing more than repeating the, the literature, pardon me, the research that we, we captured in our initial studies. And that shows shows the you know the problem with the interface. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm grab some water. Please do. It's it's fascinating. <laughs> I I bought the Oculus quote unquote for my kids, but I was actually researching it myself, and I had the experience of not wanting to return to it, and yeah. not because I didn't enjoy it and wasn't in thrall of it. I thought it was absolutely amazing, and I really enjoyed the way that my body quickly took over proprioceptively my mind would activate my virtual hands rather than my physical ones very quickly, which was a fascinating idea for me from a cognitive standpoint. But I found that my loss of time in that space was very disturbing. So I began procrastinating returning to it because I would think to myself, I don't have that much time to lose, right? And I don't want to get sucked in. That's what it felt like to me. Have you noticed anybody discussing like how their perception of time is altered in those virtual environments? We've actually examined that as a probing question and found it to be de minimis. Yep. What seems to be the driving function is that how a diverse population responds to the question of balance. Yeah. So you get, you know, in some of the studies we've seen up to 30% of the respondent base simply will not return to the device based on disorientation. Disorientation, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I guess that's what I would say too, was it wasn't just the time I spent inside the metaverse, but it was the amount of time it took me to come back to the real world after in the sense that that proprioceptive action has to recede and you have to go back to your normal physical body. So when I want to reach for something, it takes a hot second, you know, and it takes a hot second to like, yes, to physically orient yourself back to a physical reality. 
That is fascinating. Do you think it's a question of though, just early attempts needing to become more higher fidelity? I've noticed that the Apple watch is very, very concerned with my gait and my balance and measuring it, which gives me, you know, questionable information about myself, but I wonder what else they could possibly be doing with it. But do you think it's a matter of getting to a higher level of fidelity or it's just dead in the water and mixed reality is the, is, is what's coming next really? I think the metaverse per se is dead in the water. I, I yeah. think it's a it's an attenuated user experience, even with increased re, with reduced response time. It's just not going to drive the level of engagement that's going to drive effective business models. I mean, think of it this way: if you have like an eighty percent flee rate, in other words, roughly eighty percent leave within the first couple of hours, think how many individuals you have to pour in the top of the funnel to make that business work. It's simply not going to happen. Yes, yes, yes. So let me move on to our last topic because it's a doozy and, and we're getting to the top of the hour. But Singular XQ, we've been doing this podcast for two years on the subject of digital transformation. We've talked to 30 different leaders with 25 more scheduled. We are very concerned with the idea of digital transformation, the trillions of dollars that are being spent on it, and the fact that anywhere, depending on who you're talking to, whether it's Gartner, McKinsey, Harvard Business Review, anywhere from 70% to 95% of them are actively failing or going to fail. Do you have a take on why that's happening? And well, what are your thoughts? Yeah, <laughs> great question. Yeah, we've looked at this. We've been performing structured science-based website usability and user engagement testing for 15 years or so. In the last five years, we've seen an, a significant increase in the number of major site redesigns that actually never achieved their previous level of business performance based on comparing data, pre-design, post-design. And so from a cognitive science point of view, why is that? I mean, what's really happening here? And, and what one of the major factors that, that we have discovered is that the concept of transfer of learning turns out to be vastly more important than corporations, UX design teams, UX research teams have any idea about. And so mm -hmm. we have started to, in our work with, with major clients on, these, on the transformation question, we start first and foremost with a cataloging of existing skills. This is you know, more in the concept of Rasmus and then skills, rules, and knowledge as a framework. And we drive that into the early development process where we make very clear that this transfer of learning from the previous system to the new system has a massive impact on success going forward. And it may mm. be, in some cases, the primary driver in terms of determining whether or not you're going to have post-design success in your new implementation. And we've discovered this in all forms of products, like physical product design, in smartphones, for example. Website is a massive issue. Software design, a major impact in other forms of software. Metaverse suffers from this dramatically. So we think that this transformation and the reason that it's failing in large measure is due to a lack of awareness of, of the cognitive strength of the user's prior mental model moving mm -hmm. forward into a new user experience that's been redesigned. And frankly, UX designers hate that research because it shows that design, especially UX design and optimization, 
is not simply a matter of producing, you know, enhanced visual designs or what even a UX research team may think is an advanced navigation design. It's that's not where the future lies in terms of making transformations of the digital nature productive and business and successful from a business point of view. And you're right, all of the big, you know, the big consulting firms have got a lot to say about this. None of it, especially McKinsey, none of it has anything to do with a detailed understanding of the underlying cognitive structure of transformation as a fundamental way of, you know, transferring skill. And, and you as a cognitive science scientist, you, you're, you know, completely aware of the, of the core concept of cognitive minimization. That is a driving factor in all transformation. When you see a new website, even though if it's even though it's an updated website from what you've seen before, the first thing we think about it, why is this more effort? Why is this necessary? So I think that based on our formal research, we see cognitive minimization and negative transfer of learning as the primary reason that digital transformations are failing today. Yes, fascinating. As a person who's been working at the forefront of updating legacy systems for the past 10 years, this idea of user adoption and, and negative transfer of learning has been ever, ever on the mind. And then also just the way current team product teams are not set up to leverage that kind of learning or that kind of information is very frustrating. And I think I think that it, we're, we're going to get to a point where it's too painful to persist without having a reckoning with how this kind of learning and knowledge and understanding applies to how we produce products. So Charles, I am going to wrap us up here. Is there any, it's been a delight to talk to you. I would love to talk to you again. Is there anything else that you would like to say before we wrap up to get today? No, I would just say that the primary other variable, which we have not touched on, which I think is extremely important from the standpoint of usability science, UX research, is the lack of understanding on the part of research teams that are tasked with all forms of technology optimization, the failure to understand that diversity, and when I say diversity, I mean cognitive diversity, physical diversity, is largely untapped and unconsidered in research design today when validating products. For example, if you look at the areas of product development, which have the highest human factors engineering technical specification requirements, the FDA under its human factors engineering guidance provided under HE75, even the FDA fails to define the proper population for users that need to be considered in the design of studies for validating medical devices. And specifically, what I mean is, you know, you could take something like physical strength, for example, you know, the ability to push a button, something as simple as ability to push a button on an auto injector, that data needs to be developed based on a normal distribution of users and taking into consideration, you know, three standard deviations to the left or the lowest 2.5 percentile. Nowhere in industry are, is that level of diversity planning being taken into consideration. And that is the real measure of user experience and, and usability is the understanding of the diversity of the population of users. And that's missing from all studies except those which integrate a formal professional and human factors engineering science because human factors science teaches that human diversity variable as a formal subcategory of research. 
Yeah. So that would be the final point I would make. Yes. I'm going to have you back on for that very, very subject because we're about to produce a webinar and a course here at Singular XQ about cross-cultural issues and usability. And I think it's really, really relevant. I always like to say that it isn't just about virtue signaling. It's about the fact that this is not a good way to be doing business. <laughs> so, yes. Thank you so much, Charles. We'll be, look for information on where to find Charles in the program notes. Thank you all, everybody, and be well. Thanks for tuning in. All of the opinions expressed here are of the ones speaking them and do not reflect on their employers or organizations, nor are they necessarily shared by Singular XQ. Today's episode was produced by Caden Chernoff with support and content strategy from Ikra Miriam. Mad editing skills provided by Brogan Malloy and Lauren Edwards and original music provided by Abby Ahmad. Do you have feedback for us or a topic you'd like us to cover? How about suggesting a potential guest? Or even better, how about you coming in and be a guest on our show to talk about the work you do in digital transformation? Reach out to us at info at singularxq.com or connect with us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We love hearing from you. And don't forget to like, follow, subscribe, and share. Have a great day.